The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Thank you so much for listening. It's wonderful to know you're out there. I love getting your comments on the Spirit of Recovery Facebook page. Thanks for liking the Spirit of Recovery Facebook page, and um, thanks for sending your emails and letting me know how it's going for you in your spirituality and recovery walk. It's great to hear that. It's great to hear that the guests that I'm bringing here are great people. They're really touching your heart, opening your mind and and opening you to a really deep and bigger understanding of what's possible in recovery. And I want to thank you also for letting uh, your friends and the people in your recovery community and your unity community, your other spiritual communities, your family, um, everybody, letting them know about us here on unityonlineradio.org. And um, that's just great. And our audience is always growing. So it's wonderful that you're getting the word out and letting people know because it's important uh, that... Uh, in a recovery community or people that are just curious about the recovery process that we get the word out and we let people know about all the great resources available. And um, every week we do talk about topics that are important to the recovery community with guests who are down to earth, knowledgeable and innovative, with people who are either in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people or address topics that are of importance to people in recovery. My guests are always bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. You know that you can listen to Spirit of Recovery in a variety of ways. You can listen, obviously, live via your computer, via your smart smart device. You can also go to Stitcher.com and download their app and search for Spirit of Recovery. Also now, if you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can also use that. Uh, you can go uh, get their app from Amazon and you can um, simply go to uh, ask Alexa to play Unity Online Radio on TuneIn, and you can listen that way. Also, you can listen on demand. We've got uh, multiple years' worth of fabulous archives, great podcasts. So you can go to unityonlineradio.org slash program slash spirit of recovery and listen at your leisure. I want you to know that the Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place, and so if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction, or if you're the family member or friend of somebody uh, that's got the disease of addiction, I'm really glad you're here with us. You're welcome. Um, also, if you're a person that's just curious about the process of recovery, about what's all that all about, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome to uh, email in a question or call in a question or comment um, for my guest. And uh, we'd be happy to address that. Also, I want you to be aware that family members and friends also can get in their own recovery process from the family disease of addiction. And so uh, everybody's welcome here. 
We are just uh, so glad that you are listening and knowing that you're going to be getting a lot out of our program today as every day. I also want to inform you that if you want to support Unity Online Radio financially, it is a nonprofit endeavor. It's helped support Spirit of Recovery and the other great programs on UnityOnlineRadio.org. You can support it financially. Text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone and you can make a one-time or an ongoing contribution. Again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I am your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a Unity minister and also an addictions counselor, and I'm also a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship many people that have the disease of addiction. 35 years ago, those relationships were a major catalyst in my life to get me thinking about my life and my spirituality, and they... uh, got me onto an active path of personal growth and spiritual development, and I'm grateful for that. And so my path is an integration of unity and recovery principles, and it transforms my life every day, and I am indeed grateful. So today, our topic, one that's of really uh, big importance for people, anybody, and it's, and it's also really important for people in recovery, because it's really talking about spirituality and about uh, doing that healing work if you need to, of old issues in the past, um, of uh, religious wounding. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we're glad when it doesn't, but when it does, it's important. Um, to address it as we find our higher power in recovery. It's also important because all of us, one way or another, have some children in our care or in our world. And so um, it's important to think about what kind of spiritual messages we're giving those children that are in our lives um, and also that inner child that lives inside of us. That's a big part of recovery. My guest today is somebody that's uh, just fascinating and does a lot of wonderful work in the world. She's going to be sharing with us today about um, the Child-Friendly Faith Project. My guest is Janet Heimlich, and she is the founder of the Child-Friendly Faith Project, and that's an endeavor, it's a nonprofit endeavor that partners with faith communities and their efforts to ensure that religious and cultural teachings and practices are nurturing for children and do not cause them harm. Janet is also an award-winning journalist, and she is the author of this uh, book, which is uh, a must-read. It's called Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. And she's going to be sharing with us today what child-friendly faith is and why it matters. You know, because religious, cultural, and spiritual beliefs and faith communities certainly can be a great source of comfort, strength, and inspiration for young people and adults. And, And we know that, unfortunately, I think... A lot of people also are aware, and people in recovery are aware, that religion can also carry an unrecognized shadow side, and that results uh, in harmful misuse of power. So, wherever you're coming from, we're going to be looking at this uh, issue from a lot of angles. The main idea is to start to understand in some more depth and breadth, what is child-friendly faith? What helps children develop a spiritual life? What helps you as a person in recovery um, to develop your spiritual life by understanding some things about what's helpful for children and what helps you to uh, bless the children in your life with some helpful spiritual messages. So um, Janet's website is childfriendlyfaith.org, and you can learn lots more by visiting that. So Janet, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Hello, Reverend Anna. Thank you so much for having me. I thank you for saying yes. It's it's just great to have you on. And um Janet, I'll just say uh for benefit of, of the Spirit of Recovery listeners today is it it just serendipitous, I believe, or I'd say in a wonderful kind of uh uh serendipity and divine order way that um you're you happen to live in Austin, I live in Austin and I uh, ran across your organization and attended the Child Friendly Faith Conference uh, almost a couple of years ago now that was held here. And I am just uh, so impressed, and I've told you this many times, that you're on the cutting edge. You're doing some things. You're bringing together some different communities to understand fa- 
faith and understand what is really uh, spiritually nurturing for children, that, that you're bringing together a combination of people that, that I'm not sure anybody else has quite got that configuration. And my church here in Austin, we've been um, uh, participated in your uh, some of your work and, and are grateful for it. It's been a blessing to us. So, again, I'm so glad I met you and thank you for what the work that you're doing. Well, I'm really honored to hear you say that. And, uh, yeah, this has been um, – sometimes it, it does feel like we're the first ones to kind of be talking about this in a really open way. And uh, I'm here to just help keep the conversation going. Great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by the term child-friendly faith. Well, that's a great question. Um, We don't prescribe anything very specific when we talk about child-friendly faith. We don't really, and when I say we, I mean my organization, our board of directors, the faith communities we partner with and our volunteers. Um, We're not here to tell churches or synagogues or mosques how to raise their kids and this is the right way, this is the wrong way. But we are here to impart knowledge based on research and um, all the work many of us have done to at least get people thinking about, well, what, what goes on in a child's brain? What is important to understand about children as they grow from this stage to this stage? How do we reach out to them in a in a nurturing and appropriate way? And um, we developed a few years ago something we call the Charter for Child-Friendly Faith. And it's uh, not lengthy. It's a one-page document, but it does cover uh, what we feel are some of the main principles that faith communities should be familiar with. Uh, and this can be found on our website. The Charter for Child-Friendly Faith covers such things as children's rights, uh, what kind of freedom there should be for belief and faith practices, because that's very important. Uh, it talks about the impact of faith practices on children and the responsibility that faith communities have to raise children in a in a nurturing and, and responsible way. So that's part of it. Um, but I would say if there's kind of a bottom line answer to your question, we've come to believe that maybe the most important thing is just that faith communities learn about child development. Uh, I know that Unity does an amazing job of uh, teaching the folks uh, in throughout the uh, congregation about child development, and it's a it's a fabulous curriculum. Um, that is something we feel is critical. Once faith communities really start to understand uh, what goes on again in a, in a child's brain and uh, what what is necessary to uh, nurture them and fulfill their needs, they start to make great decisions for kids in terms of how they communicate with them and engage with them in faith practices. Wonderful. You know, uh, Janet, you you brought this up a, a moment ago, and I want to dig into this a little deeper, about that you, on your board of directors, it's so impressive to go on your website and see the faith traditions that are represented on your board of directors. And why that matters, again, is it's clear that child-friendly faith project isn't, you know, saying yay or nay to any particular faith tradition because you've got a variety of of people on there and they're all on board and they're people that might not be sitting in the same room for any other reason. I don't know. What what are the different faiths that you have represented on your board of directors for the Child Friendly Faith Project? Uh, Yeah, well, we we have an Orthodox rabbi. Uh, We have a... um, priest who's with the American Catholic Church, uh, and these are folks that are spread around the country for the most part. Um, we have a Baptist minister. Um, one of our members is not a religious leader, but she's a, a very uh, devout Pentecostal uh, believer, and uh, we also have people who are 
are uh, agnostic. Um, so it, it really runs the gamut. I should add, too, that we have a woman who is the head of the uh, American Islamic Congress in Washington, a very devout Muslim woman. Uh, So I think I've left some people out because I know we have a total of nine people on the board, but that gives you an idea of of the breadth. And, And it is really important to us that we have people of different faiths and worldviews. Uh, we want to make sure that we don't uh, leave anyone out, that we are taking an approach that could be adopted worldwide. Um, all of our materials are written in such a way that they could be adopted in any faith community because they all deal with some just very basic principles about raising children in a loving way. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about um, the book that you wrote. I think that that was the beginning for you of this idea of the Child Friendly Faith Project. How did you get interested in writing your book? And again, the title of it is Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. What got you interested in writing that book? I got interested in it really as a journalist. I I was a journalist at the time. I'd been reporting for National Public Radio and writing many uh, investigative pieces for, for local magazines. And when I came across, it actually started by reading about a child death case in Wisconsin, an 11-year-old girl who died from diabetes. Now, today in America, not many kids die from diabetes, but this girl was given no medical care due to the religious beliefs of her parents. Um, that kind of led me to look into other cases where children have been suffering in some way, uh, whether it was a severe case where a child, you know, had died or, or uh, more emotional uh, trauma was, uh, was happening. And I just started seeing a thread through this, uh, that whether a case is uh, sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse or neglect um, or other forms of maltreatment, that there are certain consistent things we can learn from these different cases when a belief system and ideology is motivating the perpetrators. Um, And so I kind of separate that from, uh, for lack of a better term, generic abuse and neglect, where the risk factors might be something like poverty or drug addiction, uh, mental illness, and that kind of thing. Certainly, those factors can play a role, so I'm not looking at this in a really stark way because child maltreatment cases usually uh, have a number of different factors that are, are, are working in tandem. But when it's clear that uh, uh, an individual or a family or community's religious belief is impacting the, the behavior of the adults to the point where they are harming a child through abuse or neglect. If religious belief is a strong component there. There's a lot at the time. There was a lot I felt that could be learned about that. So I wrote the book to take a look at what I call religious child maltreatment. And prior to that, it hadn't even been given a name, but I felt that it was uh, the right thing to do, and uh, in in getting across what this means, uh, you know, I I uh, learned a lot about abuse and neglect, um, what the risk factors are, what how it can traumatize uh, children and into adulthood. I interviewed many survivors, uh, loved ones of folks who didn't survive, religious leaders even some perpetrators. And through uh, those interviews, reading case studies, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, getting familiar with criminal cases and so forth, uh, I I, uh, put together uh, kind of a perfect storm uh, factor list of of uh, attributes that are going on in an environment where children are being religiously 
harmed. And uh, the, the three factors that I came up with is that in the community, there is a strict hierarchy uh, of people so that you have people with a great deal of power. And then there are those with next to no power who usually are, are women and children. Uh, it's a fear-based community. Uh, there's a lot of terrorizing going on through the use of religious messaging. And finally, uh, the community is separatist. Uh, they may not necessarily be geographically isolated, but they are socially isolated. And those three factors uh, will most often, uh, de- depending on the degree, lead to these kind of problems. Right. That Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, as you say, those kind of factors may, may factor into uh, as you called it, again, for lack of a better term, generic abuse. But as you as you also point out, that those can be really concentrated and and focused. If it if a a religious community has those kinds of of factors. Now, in your book, um, you talk about a lot of severe cases, as you say, like where children um, have actually died or really suffered uh, a great. Um, uh, uh, disability from maybe how they were treated or, or didn't get treated if they were ill. Do you find these kinds of things can happen in um, uh, milder circumstances where we wouldn't say, oh, that's a bunch of people out, you know, really isolated and wrapped up in themselves? Does it happen in um, mainstream situations? Well, I think it does. Um, I think when those three factors are not really intense, you're not going to see the same kind of obvious signs. But I think it's important to learn about them, to recognize when it's happening in a more subtle way. Um, I've certainly um, been talking to people uh, who belong to what, you know, most people would consider to be mainstream um, faith communities. And it's not that they're, you know, traumatizing their children, but they just may not know enough about child development uh, to to make the best decisions. Uh, a lot of times children are approached in kind of a cookie-cutter way, and uh, there's, there's a lack of understanding of how important it is to meet children's individual needs. Uh, so that's one thing uh, that I, I see happening quite often. Uh, sometimes in, in some of the more conservative communities, you're going to have uh, more of an authoritarian type of uh, religious upbringing versus authoritative. You may see more of a leaning towards using physical punishment and, and, the, and those kinds of techniques uh, versus uh, more authoritative means to uh, which are have been found to be much more effective and healthier for children. But, but again, if a faith community is just not really taking the time to understand those those kind of aspects of of, of children and their and their mental health, uh, you know, they're really not going to know uh, the best way to communicate with children. They may not know the the best curriculum. Uh, to to adopt, you know, in, in teaching kids and that kind of thing. So I think that we can see uh, s- some threads going on here, e- even uh, in the more mainstream uh, communities. And I think where we see that impacting kids the most is more in the emotional realm. So you, you're probably not going to see as much of the more severe abuse cases, you're, but but I, I think where it happens and where it's harder to detect is where children are suffering psychologically or emotionally. Could you give us an example of, of that, of how a child might be suffering emotionally or psychologically um, from a, just, a, again, a misunderstanding of on the mm-hmm. part of the adults about about how to convey a spiritual or religious message to children? Sure. Um, Sometimes um, children are looked to to kind of be what little preachers. Um, uh, They're they're put out either up on stage uh, during a, a service, perhaps, or going door to door, or in some way they're out there proselytizing and... Um, 
you know, acting you know, like like a religious leader, and when this when this goes on, children get lots of accolades, and and the the parents you know just think it's wonderful, and the pastor is telling them how great this is that's happening, and and you know it, the whole community is seeing this as such a positive thing. Well, a lot of the people I interviewed who were in those situations uh, were were uh, were terrified. Uh, not just terrified because you know, maybe uh, I'm not going to say the right thing or do the right thing, but but what happens if the spirit leaves me? What what happens if I I can't keep this up? Will people stop loving me? And it's it's really a lot of pressure to put a kid under. Um, so that would be an example of where to to I think anyone's you know viewpoint who's part of the faith community it, it might seem like they're doing a wonderful thing for the child who's you know appearing very happy and so forth, but in fact it it can be pretty traumatizing. Mm-hmm. So a situation where a child's kind of expected to do an adult behavior, but the child's not really able to choose that, or like you said, they don't you know they maybe don't feel like it's their choice or they they don't know if it's going to work out or not or how what the consequences might be Mm -hmm. and and when i talk about you know meeting children's individual needs some children might really gravitate towards that and and just do great with it um it it should be you know properly discussed to just really without assuming that this is good for the for the child um but there are going to be a lot of kids who, who are just terribly shy by nature. I remember interviewing one girl who, you know, from the age of four or even younger, she was expected to you know, bring her teachers to Jesus, bring her, her friends to Jesus and that kind of thing. Uh, for some kids, they might gung-ho. You know, this might be something that... Uh, that they they feel great about doing and they're really comfortable with it. She hid in the bathroom of elementary school as often as she possibly could because it just it was paralyzing for her to think about going up to the teacher and and having that that kind of pressure be put on her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really um, helpful to to get some ideas about what it is that might be stressful for a child, or again, like something that they're not really necessarily choosing or hasn't been um, worked out with them, but something that adults are kind of forcing on them from from a different perspective without really engaging that right. child in a real a real choice making or under um, right or understanding that. There's certain times that it's age appropriate, certain times that it's not, mm-hmm. and that that, go, that goes also with you know uh, what kind of um, scriptural stories are being taught to kids, um, uh, messaging about sexuality and things like that. Um, without realizing, it can really strike a lot of fear in children as well as just giving them bad information. Right. So um, one thing that's part of the child-friendly faith charter is the idea of um, under the responsibility for faith communities is uh, for the faith community to check out whether the way they're communicating with children matches up in a reasonable manner with currently accepted medical and psychological standards for healthy child development. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's so yeah. Yeah. So it's important that they that that's important that they have have good resources. So you know we have folks that are aligned with our organization who are child development experts, child psychologists, even attorneys, and um, we also make available on our website you know great resources for children that have been. Uh, properly vetted by child psychologists and that kind of thing. So um, what what we try to do in partnering with faith communities is provide them with those resources. Again, we're not here to say, well, this is how you should be teaching children your faith. We are here to just offer resources so that there's education there and then faith communities can make the best choices for them. Right. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's time for our uh, break, 
But uh, we're loving what you're sharing with us today, Janet, and um, we'll uh, take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk some more about what child-friendly faith is. We'll talk some more about how people in recovery can apply this to themselves and also to the children that they uh, have in their lives, and and perhaps also uh, thinking about their own faith communities if they are engaged with that in the present time. So um, my topic is spirituality that nurtures children, including the child within. My guest is Janet Heimlich. She's the founder of the Child Friendly Faith Project that partners with faith communities in efforts to ensure that their teachings and practices are nurturing for children while supporting their certainly their own faith uh, walk. And she is an award-winning journalist and the author of the book Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. And you can learn more about her work at childfriendlyfaith.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Spirit of Recovery. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance, focused, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on a Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you've ever wondered how a specific Bible verse might be interpreted metaphysically, then Interpret This is for you. In Interpret This, Unity Minister Rev. Ed Townley answers your questions about the Bible and how to apply its verses to your life with passion, depth, and spiritual insight. To submit a question or to enjoy any of his numerous metaphysical interpretations, visit unity.org and click on the Interpret This box. It is the birthright of each and every one of us to live an awakened life. Most religions and spiritual traditions teach us that we need to adopt a certain belief system or follow some prescribed steps to attain a state of enlightenment. A long-held belief about awakening is that only a small number of people destined to become gurus or spiritual teachers can attain it. It is certainly true that until recent times, only a small number of people on the planet had attained this state of full self-realization. These saints, mystics, and spiritual masters were seen as special. They certainly were at the time. However, times are changing. This message was brought to you by T.J. Woodward, host of Awakened Living Radio. Learn more from T.J. on his weekly podcasts. Episodes are available on unityonlineradio.org, iTunes, and Google Play Music. for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus and her guest. If you have a question or comment or experience with today's topic that you'd like to share, call us now at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Call now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unityonlineradio.org. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. 
If you're just joining us, my name is Anna Schaus and I'm your host. And our topic today is spirituality that nurtures children, including the child within. My guest is Janet Heimlich. She's the founder of the Child Friendly Faith Project, which partners with faith communities um, in their efforts to ensure that they what they are doing is good for children and and um, is supporting children's spiritual development. Janet's also an award-winning journalist and the author of the book Breaking their will, shedding light on religious child maltreatment. And she's sharing lots of great information with us today about what does nurture children in their spiritual growth, and that's a wonderful help for people in recovery. If you're thinking about your own inner child, or if you're needing to go back and and do some uh, thoughtful healing about perhaps... uh, maybe not so great experiences that you might have had in your childhood with religion or spirituality as as in recovery you're working to develop your own spiritual life also it's really helpful as you're thinking about the children in your life today and perhaps also in the spiritual communities that you participate in what's really nurturing to children and to that inner child again you can learn more at childfriendlyfaith.org before I get back to my conversation with Janet Heimlich I'd like to invite you to join me in a brief moment of meditation, the Serenity Minute, where we'll take a moment to relax, to share a constructive idea, and take just a moment in the quiet as you make that conscious contact with your higher power as you understand it, as you define it. So I invite you to relax, to feel that uh, peaceful presence of uh, your higher power, of life, of joy. Feeling relaxation all the way through your body temple, from the crown of your head all the way through your shoulders and arms and hands. Feeling relaxation through the trunk of your body, your legs and feet, allowing your mind and your heart to open. And share with me this constructive idea. I have a nurturing relationship with my spirituality. I trust that presence of my higher power as I define it. I am loved. I am cared for. I am guided. I have a nurturing relationship with my spirituality. I trust that power that is, I call my higher power as I define it. I let go. And I allow that presence and power, as I understand it, to love and nurture me. And we take just a moment now in the quiet. for joining me in the Serenity Minute and I trust that it was an opportunity for you to take a brief moment to relax and to open up to that nurturing presence and power and make that spiritual connection for yourself. And so now I'm back to my conversation with Janet Heimlich about uh, what child-friendly faith is, about how it nurtures, uh, spirituality can nurture children, including that child within. So, um, Janet, as you say, you've been, you have uh, interviewed a lot of adults uh, who we call survivors, and I'm saying I'm sure they're also thrivers who had some not so great experiences with religion in their childhood, but have gone on to create uh, very productive and fruitful lives. What are some of the things that they tell you that did not? work for them, some things that were harmful for them that they experienced um, through religion in their childhood, and how have they moved through that? How have they healed that? What have they brought with them from that religion that was positive for them, and or what have they created? What, are they, what do they do now? How do they live? How do they find their values? So just tell us about what do survivors say? Well, I mean, it, it really 
runs the gamut. Uh, a lot depends on just uh, how oppressive their religious upbringing was. I, I think one common thing I hear from a lot of survivors was when they were making that journey from leaving their faith community, oftentimes at a pretty young age, uh, like when they were 16, 17, 18 years old. And then because, you know, these communities often are so socially separatist, they're kind of thrust out into the outer world and they're just lost. Uh, First of all, they have next to no support system. They haven't been uh, raised with, you know, really understanding even how to communicate much with with people who are uh, not part of that faith community. I remember one man saying, you know, he literally didn't know how to order a beer in a restaurant. He went out with some friends, new friends he had met. He didn't know how to order. And I said, well, well was that because, you know, you weren't really allowed to drink before you left the faith community? He says, no, 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 I, I really literally didn't know how to order in a restaurant. I mean, just things like that can be really extreme in terms of the, the difference uh, going from their you know, the, the community they grew up in to the, the outside world. So I think that transition has been very difficult for a lot of people. But I also find that the ones that did leave, sometimes they were kicked out, but I think the same applies, that these are individuals that were strong people. I mean, they were beaten down a lot, but they had some core about them that was very strong, and that allowed them to make that journey, do what they had to do to heal and seek therapy, seek community, and learn about the maltreatment of their upbringing. I think people who have read, I'm always I'm always really surprised that a survivor has read my book because when I was writing it, I thought, God, some of these stories are so difficult. Why would someone want to be re-traumatized and read any of this again? But I have found that just about every survivor I've talked to who have read it has said, that was cathartic for me to understand what was going on in my upbringing, to see that it was clearly abuse or clearly neglect, now that I understand what those two things are. And it just uh, really helped in in their clarity and in their recovery. So that's kind of some general things I can say about what a lot of survivors have gone through. And then some of them have taken it a step further and become advocates. Mm-hmm. What did they do? Uh as advocates, how how do they approach that? Well, these are people that oftentimes have worked with me. Um, they have allowed me to interview them for a blog post. Uh, sometimes an, uh, an individual. I always, when I give a talk, I always like to uh, be joined by a survivor. That always kind of drives it all home a, a little bit more clearly for people. Um, so... Uh, you know, sometimes they have uh, spoken with me at a conference or on a radio show like this, and uh, that's really been helpful for them, you know, because this journey just, it, it's their whole life. You know, it, it, I would say some people have just for various reasons, often because they're still connected to the families they, you know, grew up with, um, they they kind of want to turn it off and just not look back. But I would say that most of the people that I communicate with are very much open to dealing with some of these things, communicating with other people, helping other people through it. We have a Facebook group called Child Friendly Faith, and it's got something like 700 people. But don't be intimidated by that because you know how these groups are. It's only, you know, so many people that are active on it and uh that it's mostly survivors so that has provided a great community for people um and you know i'm i'm often getting emails from other people in my organization uh when when people just need some resources and so i feel like we're we're trying to reach out and also we're partnering with other organizations that 
pick up where we we can't. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's a great organization called Freedom of Mind, and it's run by uh, Steve Hassan, who is a, a cult survivor himself and a therapist. And so he not only um, helps people through their issues, but connects them with people who um, who are are needing services. Uh, and there, there are a number of other organizations that uh, people can learn about from our website. Uh, there, there's one, I'm trying to remember the name of it right now, where it actually is meetup groups around the world. Um, it's called Recovering from Religion. And that organization is where, you know, you actually get together with other survivors. And uh, so there's a community that's been building, and I think that's been really helpful to people. That's great, and and I too, I don't you know have any specific information, but sometimes within a particular uh, broader faith community or faith tradition, there will be adult survivors who create groups around the particular um, experience in that faith tradition. And I think it's really important to understand that uh, survivors are coming from all kind of different frames. It's not necessarily that they reject the religion they grew up in. Some people do. It's it's an individual choice. It's not necessarily yeah. that they reject spirituality. Some people do. But but the, to me, and I'm, I'll say this and I'm going to ask you what you hear from survivors, it's that people that have survived religious abuse, be it mild or severe, um, they are people that are ready and willing to claim themselves and their own way of understanding their spiritual life, however that comes for them. And how do you see that? Do they? Mm-hmm. Is that what you get from talking with survivors? Um, yes, I, I would say the vast majority are still seeking some kind of uh, spiritual home base. Um, and that's one reason why we really want to reach out to these communities so that they're not just learning about how to connect with children in a healthy way, but that they're also uh, a, a, a place of uh, reception and comfort and uh, for, for, for adults that come in who are survivors. I think that's a huge gap right now where people are parents, and they're survivors, and they're they're raising their kids. They have a family, and they're looking for a church or a synagogue or a mosque. And they're they're you know very particular that this is a place that's going to be child friendly. Mm-hmm. I think that we need a lot more religious organizations out there who take this on and learn more about religious child maltreatment, so they can serve whole families better. Right. Because it matters, adults, uh, especially adult survivors of religious abuse or, or adults in recovery, have a wonderful radar, and they should. Yes. When they walk in the community, right. they're going to sniff it out, and they ought to. That's a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, and I think that many of them are caught between either not joining anything or maybe it's some, you know, totally secular group, which might serve them, but there are still maybe people that feel like that's not fulfilling enough spiritually. But then they may end up joining something and there's triggering going on or, you know, they're cringing and it's just, it's, it's still pushing those buttons. Uh, you know, that, that is not, you know, that, that is not what we want. That's not, that's not a healthy place for someone to be, uh, who, who is, who is sensitive to those, to, to, you know, it just maybe every once in a while, but they'll they'll hear something, or their child may come home one day from you know Sunday school or something, and something just triggers them. They they know that that this is a reminder of something they grew up with that that ended up being very harmful to them. So I I, I feel like we still have a long way to go. Right, and I know you know. Uh, one of the big things and, and a feature of the Child Friendly Faith Project, in which my church here has participated in and, and really benefited from, is called the uh, Child Friendly Faith Project Designation Program. And again, this is uh, the, the program through which you're really working with faith communities. Tell us about it, about um, how it works and what its uh, purpose is. Sure. Well, the designation program is our 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 solution really to 
helping faith communities get to a place where they really are being nurturing to all children, that they're protecting them appropriately from abuse, and uh, serving whole families. Um, we, we have a right now, a curriculum, which is a discussion series. And this is something that um, any faith community can participate in. They just download the materials. They conduct these discussion sessions behind closed doors. Uh, They elect uh, who the facilitator of the group is and then use our materials to take the the group through these different discussions. And then so these are adults, the, groups of adults in the church. Yes, thank you. Yeah. yeah, these are all adults. They can be uh, youth group leaders, religious leaders, administrators, parents, just adults who are congregants, you know, anyone that, that wants to learn about this. Um, once they complete the program, they have um, had experience not just learning about some of the issues that we've been talking about, but feel like they can talk about them in a way uh, coming from a place of confidence and understanding. And then they can then kind of take this to the wider, the the rest of the faith community, perhaps, you know, have uh, events that um, where, where members can be, helping others understand some of these concepts better. Um, the designation program right now, as I said, is just a discussion series, but we are working on a more developed program that's even more comprehensive, that it, it, it's, it's more educational, but it's still very interactive. Um, so this whole comprehensive uh, program, this two-step program, the second one involves workshops and, and that kind of thing, uh, will then... Uh, result in a faith community being uh, designated as a child-friendly faith community. And we help them with with marketing to get others to see that they've taken these important steps. And and we feel like that's a way that they can then uh, attract more members and people that are, as I said, those families looking for a spiritual community where they feel they really get kids and they understand how to protect them. They know about Report, recognizing abuse and neglect and reporting it and all that good stuff. And so they deserve this designation, and then they can be a beacon for those individuals and families who were looking for a child-friendly faith community. Right. I know when we um, did this here in our church, and it's been, gosh, it's been over a year. It's gone fast. But, again, we've always had a child protection policy, you know, and have educated, and we educate the whole, we have our child protection policy workshops and educate um, the congregation. However, when we did this, it was a wonderful uh, enrichment for our community, for our uh, youth and family ministry uh, volunteers and um, staff and and for we had some other people in that congregation that participated because what it did was it enhanced and enriched what we were doing it it invited us in some real concrete ways with some you know case studies and so forth to really think in depth about well gosh if i say that or tell this um scriptural story in a certain way what what would a child really how would they see that you know from their developmental perspective Mm -hmm. and um it was wonderful everybody enjoyed it so much and got a lot out of it and it got us having that conversation in depth and it made a big difference for us well that's great to hear and you know i i i'm it never ceases to surprise me that when people are and you know swimming in the waters of their own particular faith um and they're they're really not looking to the outside for le- learning about uh, child development and that kind of thing in, in a kind of concentrated way. Um, you find that people end up kind of kind of thinking that you know anything that has to do with their religious beliefs and practices are going to be beneficial, and sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And so I think that. If there's one thing that I hope that the designation program does, 
is it doesn't uh, sour. You know, I never wanted to sour people on their faith. I, there, there's, you know, we, we don't want to create any kind of a negative feeling, but we do want to open people's minds, and we do want people to look upon faith practices with an open mind and be able to objectively assess their decisions so that they can go forward knowing that the choices they're making really are healthy choices for kids and parents as well. And that goes as far as, you know, the, the parenting classes that they give and the, uh, the materials that they bring into the community. Right. What kind of uh, response do you get from faith leaders about this work, Janet, from all of the people on your board are either faith leaders or community leaders in some way, from them, from other faith leaders that you bring this to. What, uh, what feedback, what response do you get from, from leaders in the faiths and in the community? Very positive. Um, I've been contacted by religious leaders who want to uh, learn more about what we're doing, or there may be uh, individuals we're in communication with who who talk to their faith leaders about the program and encourage them to to participate. And we feel like you know, once once they just even start to learn about what we're talking about, uh, it's it's a very positive positive and hopeful discussion there. I will say that um, one bridge we're trying to get across is the instilling the importance of um, nurturing children and understanding their needs versus the need to control children. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to be, I'm going to just generalize here, but I do think it's borne out in my research that in the more conservative or what I call ultra-conservative communities, you're going to have much more of a concern about uh, controlling children's lives and their behavior. I think there's, there's controls put on, you know, actually across the board, but it's definitely true when it comes, to, and it, this starts at the top, you know, where there's just more of a prescription of how we raise kids. It's done in a much more cookie-cutter approach. And that's where, you know, we can hit a wall because a faith community has to be willing at some point in the process to let go of this need to control children and come from a place of a little more security and confidence and trust. Uh, Children can teach uh, adults a lot about about themselves just just through interaction, and uh, and 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 that can be a really positive thing. I know that you know in the unity services that I've been to, you know the way that you have children interact with the adult at the end of your service. It's like you have the age appropriate stuff just for the kids, where they have their their um, program, and then they join the adults at the end, and everyone comes together. I mean, that's just a really beautiful way to approach things. Well, you have other communities where, you know, the children are made to sit in the adult service for sometimes hours, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not appropriate. It can be agonizing for a child. They're, you know, made to sit still. There's just a lot more controlling mechanisms put in place. And so when you get more to the more conservative end of the spectrum, there's going to be more resistance to to taking on a program that we have. Right. Janet, our time is up, but um, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much for sharing uh, in such a uh, wise and loving way about spirituality that nurtures children. And um, what you're doing is a real gift for faith communities and um, for individuals. And uh, I just want to thank you for what you're doing and thank you for how you blessed us here at our uh, faith community and how what you're doing is making a difference and how it's rippling out into the world. Well, thank you so much for having me. And then if there is anyone interested in joining with us, if you have expertise you can share, uh, volunteering, we're so open to collaborating with faith communities and individuals with expertise, so please reach out 
and uh, let us know you're there. It's childfriendlyfaith.org, and we really look forward to connecting with folks who, who want to get involved. Great. That's wonderful. Thank you, listeners. I know you've gotten a lot out of this today, as every time, and uh, be blessed. Have a wonderful week, and uh, let yourself be nurtured and loved. And we'll be back next week on Spirit of Recovery. Thank you for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time for down-to-earth ideas about keeping spirituality at the heart of your recovery. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at soulmatters-spiritworks.org. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again. Don't take your dreams lying down.